Welcome to the Am I Called podcast. Am I Called is a ministry that exists to help men find their call and to help pastors find called men. For more information and resources, visit amicalled.com. Now, here's your host, Dave Harvey. Morning, folks. It's sunny and 81 today in Tallahassee, capital of the sunshine state of Florida. This is the Am I Called podcast, and I'm your host, Dave Harvey. If the name Barnabas Piper is familiar to you, it may be because you're aware of his most recent book, Help My Unbelief, Why Doubt is Not the Enemy of Faith. It may be because he writes for World Magazine. Or perhaps it's because he bears the privilege, and I would suggest as well the burden, of being the son of John Piper, the Reformed world's favorite pastor-preacher. Now, since the Am I Called podcast exists to serve leaders and and those who may be called to lead, Barnabas has agreed to focus today's content on his last book, The Pastor's Kid, Finding Your Own Faith and Identity. Barnabas, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Dave. That was a uh, a really kind intro. I feel extra special now. You are extra special, Barnabas, and I'm glad you're joining us with all of your specialness. (laughs) That's a very Dr. Phil moment. Hey, uh, let's start with the most obvious question. You know, why did you write The Pastor's Kid? That, that is a question I've been asked at several times, and I, it's, it's one that uh, it, has a, it has a handful of pieces that sort of came together because I, I didn't write it to sort of tell my story as a pastor's kid or as the son of John Piper. Uh, memoirs are, have to be ex- uh, extraordinarily well-written to be interesting. I don't think I'm that good of a writer. Um, I also don't know that my story is all that interesting. But what happened was over the course of time in interacting with lots of different pastor's kids, so through high school, then college, then post-college, and then after writing an article or two for a couple different, you know, a website and and, um, Table Talk Magazine, Ligonier Ministries publication, on being a pastor's kid and on the challenges of being a pastor's kid, I just started getting these really, really strong responses from from people in ministry or people who's who had grown up as pastor's kids and it struck me that there was just this this itch that needed to be scratched and that was happening at the same time as I was kind of sorting through some things in my own mind and my own heart wondering you know how is it that I got to where I am what about some of the faith struggles in my own life and I, a lot of that tied into my life as a pastor's kid so those two things kind of coalesced into into writing a book, and David C. Cook was kind enough to to be excited about it and to and to publish it, and um, so that's how it came together. Were, and I were re- there pastors' kids reaching out to you before you started writing on it? And is there any sense where you know, given the popularity of your your father, that the average pastor kids or or maybe a, a pastors' kids might assume that you understand the complexities of their life because you would certainly understand it from your experience. It was it was sort of a twofold thing. So uh, a couple different publications asked me to write something. My conversations with pastors' kids were much more personal than that. It's just sort of when when pastors' kids meet and you find out that somebody else is one, there's sort of this knowing. Oh right, you know you know a, a you big it. piece of my story. I know a big piece of yeah. your story, and we've talked for 15 seconds. And uh, so a lot of it was that. But then, yeah, there just there was this there was an ongoing question that people would ask regularly. You know, what was it like to be the son of John Piper? Which is a really difficult question to answer. But 
it it smacks of what about your life was unique. And so uh, that's something that's really true for any pastor's kid. It's just that more people know who my dad is. Yeah. Now, one of the points that you make in the book, Barnabas, you just that when a, when a pastor's kid goes in a different direction from their parents, is that that can actually be very hurtful to the father mm-hmm. who's a pastor because because there's a way that pastors tend to embody and own and sacrifice for what they believe. So the differences between them and their child can become very personal very quickly. So how would you hope to respond to your kids if they believe differently than you or if they go in a different direction? It really depends on what the different direction is. I think one of the things that can cause a lot of conflict in a pastor's home is that a good pastor practices what they preach. And so if they have real profound theological convictions or a real distinct view on what it looks like to live as a disciple or to do, uh, to do ministry or to be missional or, I mean, whatever the distinctives are in terms of following Jesus, and the child takes a different tack on those things, that can cause conflict. Um, it's a different thing if the child says, I don't believe in Jesus, and the dad says or the parents say, well, that's what we base our lives on, because that's, that's obviously a massive divide. So in thinking of my own children, I hope that I can look at them and see well enough where their hearts are to say they have a passion for following Jesus. The road they are taking to do that looks different than how I would do it, but they're still aiming at, pers- at following Jesus and living for Jesus. Now, if they go a different route and they say, I don't believe in Jesus, I hope that I will reflect the, both the commitment to Christ to continue to show it to them and the grace of God so that they know that they, they are welcomed back uh, should, they, should they come to a place of belief. And there's not, there's not a place of judgment there. That yeah. is also something that pastor's kids feel a lot is if they depart, they can't come back. Yeah, so just make that practical for a second, Barnabas. Um, you're, you said you're, I would want to make my commitment to Jesus evident mm-hmm. to them. What, what would that look like in the home? I think it's in everything, everything from just spiritual disciplines to, to I think the, at, at its base, though, it's the fruits of the Spirit. So you have, you have a life that, that is built around serving Christ. So I work in my job in such a way that uh, that they know that I'm I'm serving Christ, not the paycheck. Now the paycheck is a nice thing, but I work for Christ. I have these ethics. I have this patience. I have this kindness. I treat my neighbors well, so that there is something winsome about you. And I want my children to respect me, not just because I'm dad, but because I'm worthy of respect. And I think that is something that that every parent should should probably consider. But pastors oftentimes. Uh, can get caught up into the position or into in sort of the the role instead of thinking I need to be a parent who is worthy of my child's respect so they look at me and want to emulate me. I think there's a you know there's a way that sometimes we can respond to to differences it's not just differences with our children but even with folks in the church where where we can be tempted to withdraw relationally but I think that that plays out more specifically and more often in the home, and it can really end up killing a, or at least draining 
a relationship of its life when it happens between a parent and a child because the child disagrees with the parent in some way. So it seems like that relationship, retaining that relationship, investing in that relationship, and yes. letting them know that this disagreement that we hold does not redefine this relationship. That seems like that's really important. I, absolutely. And I think... Um I think one of the themes, one of the themes that kind of runs through the pastor's kid, and especially in those chapters specifically about the relationship between parent and child, is is to build the relationship on on normal relational things, conversation, time spent, finding things you enjoy doing together, because you you can be at total odds with your parent or your or your child about something theological, something political. But if you both enjoy going fishing together or you both enjoy going biking together, or you both enjoy golfing or, or watching a football game or whatever it is, you can still have a tight bond. And your, your life needs to be more than just your theological convictions or your political convictions or your societal convictions. Because if that, is the, if that becomes the wedge between you, I think you have lost what it looks like to love those uh, who are different than you, and that's that's that happens a lot in a pastor's home, and but I mean I think it happens in lots of families. Yes, I I agree. I, I wanted to uh, I wanted to read something Barnabas that you wrote and just get you to interact a little bit about this because I I was really excited about the opportunity to talk together because it provides an opportunity to look more closely at something that can often happen with pastors as it relates to their kids mm -hmm. and their qualifications for ministry. So let me just read what you wrote. You, you said, the tacit reminder that our rebellion may cost dad his job is not an expression of grace leading to repentance and restoration. It is a cause for resentment. Now, what I want to get you thinking about and interacting over is that, you know, one of the realities, and I would suggest one of the dissimilarities with other roles, other vocations, is that the pastor's parenting is brought into play by 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, you know, manage his household well and keep mm -hmm. them submissive and kids not open to charges of debauchery or insubordination. But the kids have never really signed up for that. So I guess my first question on that is, in your opinion, is there a place for for the dad, the pastor dad, to let the kids know that the call makes a claim upon the whole family? I think kids know that without being told. I think how a, how a parent explains it and expresses it can either add, or, or in many cases doesn't ever address it, can either add to the burden or can, or can sort of create a, we are all in this together. Because I think I think what pastor's kids often miss is that sense of my, my parents are held to a higher standard, I am held to a higher standard, maybe not a fair standard, but, but a higher standard. And so we, we are all in a position where we are trying to ultimately honor the Lord above anything else, but also deal with some of these expectations together. What are some in, of the ways that a pastor's kid becomes aware of that higher standard and that they're being held to it as well? It's all around, it is, it is all around a pastor's kid from really early. So the moment you become sort of socially aware, uh, starting really early. So I mean, I remember being in first or second grade in Sunday school 
and having this sort of expectation that I was supposed to answer the Sunday school teachers' questions. You know, they put out a question about, you know, David and Jonathan in, in the Bible story, and I was expected to answer it by not so much my peers at that point, but the teachers actually at that point. You're the resident um, junior theologian. Right. I mean, it's you're the pastor's kid. You're supposed to know these things. And that's even a phrase that I remember hearing was, you're the pastor's kid. You should know that. But that also comes up in behavior. You're the pastor's kid. You can't talk like that. You can't listen to music like that, even if it's something that all of my peers were doing. Not that they set the moral standard, but it just showed that there was a different standard for me than for them. Things that would, would be let slide with my peers would not be let slide with me. You know, if I if I pulled some shenanigans in, in, in a junior high youth group, my mom would get called. Mm-hmm. Nobody else's mom got called. They just got told to sit down and be quiet. You know, so it was that kind of thing. Um, and that's not uncommon. But, but another big way, and this is more subtle, it's a little bit less aggressive, is just the sense of awareness that everybody knows the pastor's family at all times. You, you are always under scrutiny when you're at church. So how you sit and behave in the church service, who you talk to, who you don't talk to, how you talk to them. There's people will come up and ask you very personal questions and you don't even remember their names. You know, they'll, you know, they'll go, oh, how was your football game on Friday night? It was fine, Mr. Uh, uh, you guy. <laughs> and, uh, and, there's, and, and that's a, that when you know that everybody is watching, it, it creates a sense of, I don't have any room for missteps. I have to perform the way I'm expected to perform instead of just being me. And, and that's, a, that's a difficult thing. Yeah, and I think it's really important uh, for the pastors that are listening or guys that are aspiring to pastoral ministry to realize this is not something that you really have any control over. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can certainly speak to it. You can seek to lead your family through it. You could even exhort the congregation regarding how you want your family cared for if you're if you're wise and diplomatic enough to do that without offending people. But this this culture, this this air that pastors' kids breathe is gonna be there regardless of of what you do. And so it's good to to just begin raising your family in light of that and caring for your family in light of that. I think that, yeah, I, I really like that phrase in light of that because it, it shows that sort of an acceptance of a reality that you can't change. I think if pastors' families fight this reality really hard, it'll lead to exhaustion and resentment. I do think there are things you can do to, to, to try to create a little bit of margin, mostly in your own home. But mostly it is just a matter of, and, and I think this is where that we sort of started talking about this piece, was addressing it with your kids and just acknowledging this is a different reality. We have to learn how to deal with these things. We, we have to have a measure of humility and a measure of grace. And we want to create an environment here in our home where you can just be you. You can ask questions. You can uh, express frustration. And, and this is not a, you know, we're not going to judge you or punish you for getting frustrated at Mr. So-and-so who's in your business again or something like that. So do you think a pastor should take the additional step of, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about doing this wisely and carefully and lovingly, but, but trying to steward his or, or, or shepherd his children into the knowledge that there are passages that relate to his leadership in the home and that his, 
you know, his his ability to 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 live fruitfully within ministry is dependent upon, you know, his leadership in the home. I think if a pastor is going to do that, it has to be after laying a rock solid foundation that every person in the church is expected to live by a single standard, and that's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. If, if that's the foundation that your children just know, look, we have that standard. If any other standard is put on you from outside that's not that standard, that's, that's, that's extra biblical. And, and so you, we want you to live a life that honors Jesus. That is the standard. Then, after that has been established, and you, if, if you feel like you need to address those passages, and it's not a bad idea because if your kids are reading the Bible, they will see that, and they, you know, they're not dumb. And then you go to it and you say, this is, this is a standard for pastors, but it's not really a standard that's so different than what any other Christian family should aspire to. It's just simply saying, in order to effectively lead a church, you need to exhibit the qualities of Christian leadership. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's like any other set of job qualifications in the sense that if you want to be the CEO of a company, you have to have a certain amount of business savvy, a certain amount of uh, task management, a certain amount of leadership capability. These are spiritual components of those things. Um, but it has to start with that foundation of we all live by a single standard. That is the aim. Yeah, and I think guys have to be very careful not to pull out those passages when their kids are are misbehaving in some way, or if one of the kids go and goes into a dark season where uh, God doesn't seem real to them, or they're working through issues of their faith, or mm-hmm. or maybe even dabbling in rebellion. Um, I, I don't think that those are the go-to passages because I, that can immediately become a form of um, a, a lever for control. Uh, uh, and a, a manipulative um, tool, if you when will. It, yes, absolutely, and it 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 will crush, it will crush your kids, and and very likely make them hate the church more. Because what kind of organization would fire my dad because I made a dumb decision? That's that would be the the sense of things. And then on the other hand, it's uh, it's just, I I think it's it's taking your eye off the ball. If you are trying to win your child's heart, you're not making threats about your livelihood. You are trying, you want to win them back. You don't want to coerce or threaten them back. That's, that's wrong. Yeah, and I do, I do think it's important to realize, I'm coming around the other side of that from the standpoint of the, the culture that the church wants to create, um, in, in giving a pastor room or space. I, I think it's important to realize that the primary intent of those passages, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, is to identify potential elders. It's, it's not to evaluate existing elders or to create a catalog for, for disqualifying sins. It's not that they have no, no relevance, but it, I, I think we have to first acknowledge the original intent of those passages. I mean, yes. I'm, I'm revising Am I Called, the book Am I Called uh, right now. And I, one of the things I did was I swapped out the wording of qualifications for the wording of requirements because qualifications imply that if you're not living up to a standard at any particular time, well, then you're disqualified. 
but uh, you know requirements are far less polarizing and it you know provides an opportunity for a guy who might be struggling in a season to, to grow in an area but not be disqualified from right. that so I I think and, it's important to recognize the intent of those passages and I think it's also important to realize I'll, I'll, exactly in line with what you were just saying that they're not black and white it's not an instance of the first so you become a pastor when all of your you know your kids range from 8 to 12 they're all well behaved uh, at least as far as you know they they, they give no evidence of rebellion. But then your, your 12-year-old over the course, you know, turns 15, 17, 18. And then at 18, they become a free thinker. And they're, they're exploring other things. They're not sure they like church. They, they, begin to, they begin to explore what they believe. No, of course you want them to love Jesus and love the church. But, the, but that doesn't disqualify you from ministry. How you respond to it does, and I do think that there are pastors who ought to step away from ministry because their families need them, because their child's actions are, are a cry for better parenting and more involvement from, from dad or mom, and, uh, and that's, but that's a case-by-case basis. There's not, there's not a sliding scale where you go, when this happens, then this happens, that equals step away from the ministry, or you should be let go. And I think, I think too often it gets treated that way where there are people who go, well, your kids are acting out. You're not, you shouldn't be a pastor instead of, instead of kind of understanding the, the, I guess I don't want to say gray area because there are, there are moral blacks and whites, but the, the, like you said, the intent of those passages as finding people who are qualified elders, but then also knowing that there is a range that can happen before you say, Maybe it's time for you to take a step back for a period. And, and as the examination does come, that the examination be focused on f- his faithfulness in the home mm-hmm. and not necessarily the fruit, because the fruit can look different in different seasons. Yes. And the okay. fact that he's having those questions at 18 doesn't necessarily mean that the pastor father has been unfaithful. It, it may be that those mm-hmm. seeds are going to bear fruit you know, in the future. It, if if the if the church body or the church leadership makes the decision that because a child has stopped believing a pastor is no longer qualified to to lead they have created they have they have tacitly said that a parent is responsible for their child's salvation yeah, justification not the, not the holy spirit justification by parenting right and that's i mean that's heretical so it is the Holy Spirit who saves, and a parent can do absolutely everything in their power to instill the Word of God in a child and create a home environment that is full of grace and forgiveness and exemplify a Christ-like life. And the child can walk away and say, I hate God. And that's not in your power. Just like there are people who get saved out of the most horrific circumstances where they had no reason to love Jesus. And so you cannot, you cannot play the role of the Holy Spirit, and pastors ought not be expected to uh, in, in their own homes. Barnabas, I was talking to, uh, to a pastor's kid this past week, not, not one of mine, but uh, um, who, who talked about the experience of wanting to do the things that their friends did, whether it was uh, movies or music or just different freedoms um, that the other kids seemed to enjoy. And yet the pastors, the, the father uh, in this case, um, 
you know, they made it clear that, that that wasn't their direction we were going in, that their, you know, their example was in view and they wanted to lead their family well. And to me, that just illustrated what I think is a, is a common problem within the a pastor's home of, uh, of, of being very attentive to, to their example. Thank God they are and wanting to lead their children into that. So I, I guess the question I want to ask is, what, what counsel would you provide to pastors that are listening or guys who are aspiring to plant a church or to, to lead as an elder? What counsel would you provide them on how to help their kids think through the, the standards they experience and the life that their dad is seeking to exemplify? I, I can't think of a single example, uh, and I, I could be wrong, but I can't think of a single example where your position and the example you're trying to set as a pastor is the primary reason why your child should or should not do something. If your child should not listen to a certain band or go to a certain movie, the reason is not because you are a pastor. The reason is something more important than that, and it's something having to do with how will this affect your soul? What is the content of that? Is this good for you? And, and so I do think that, there, that the example as a family comes into play sometimes, but usually that's imposed. When, when you have to go to that, it, it's imposed from the outside. It's not something that you are, you're dictating to your children, if that makes sense. When you are making decisions or helping your child make decisions about what they should and should not do, the standard has to be righteousness, not pastoral example. I think this is a really important point because, and you alluded to this earlier, and but I think it's worth restating, all of the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are found uh, and need to be applied, are found in other parts of the Bible as being applied to all Christians. Mm-hmm. And so they're just, I mean, they're cobbled together and they're presented for the elder, appropriately so. But... But a pastor should never be in a position to be calling his children to a standard simply because we're, we're, I'm a pastor and we're a pastor's family. But we can do that on the authority of Scripture because those passages apply to all of us. Yes, and even those times when you make a decision that's not based on righteousness, it should be based on that standard of, I, I want to say it's uh, 1 Corinthians, or maybe it's 2 Corinthians, the, the weaker brother, stronger brother. And I might have my, pa- I might have my passage wrong there. But uh, that idea that we will choose not to do this, even though we don't think it's wrong, because we want to care for someone else. So even then, the standard is not because we want to protect our image. The standard is because we want to protect their heart. And that's, that's something that is, if you are consistent in that, you're teaching your children a valuable lesson because you're not putting yourself in a different spot as a pastor and saying we have, we have a higher standard or we're better people or anything like that. And you're teaching them empathy and you're teaching them how to consider living a righteous life and, and what some of the sacrifices are and what some of the hard decisions are and how to think of it in terms of other people's discipleship. Yeah, that's very good. You know, one of the, uh, one of the things that, that we were doing in that last question is we were, I was asking you to interact a bit uh, with the pastors in view and the guys that are aspiring to be leaders or elders or church planters. But what, I want to shift it around a little bit now and, and just have you imagine for a second that you had 
you know, a microphone in your hand, you were addressing a congregation, uh, mm -hmm. so not the pastors, but the congregation now, and you're addressing a congregation on the pastor's home. You know, what would you want to tell them about how to help the pastor and uh, in his home and how to help the pastor's kids? Yeah, I think that is a, that's something I would love to see pastors do. I think it's difficult because it feels very self-serving uh, for a pastor to get up and say, hey, here's how you can take care of my family better. Um, but it, but as, as a third party, if I was to have a chance to do that, I think the first and foremost, and this, this is going to sound uh, both obvious and possibly a bit cliche, is to pray for the pastor's family. It's very hard to resent or to have ill motives towards somebody you're praying for. Um, and so that, that measure, you are, you are when in praying for the pastor's family, you are lifting up the person who bears a great spiritual, uh, a great spiritual burden for the whole congregation. And you are protecting yourself from resenting them or, or uh, having ill motives towards them or, or treating them poorly because it's really hard to treat people poorly when you want God to help them. And, and so that's first and foremost. I think the second thing is to, is to ask a congregation to examine themselves and just realize that you, you can't help what you know about the pastor's family because they're, they're public figures in a church context. And that's true at a church of 100 or a church of 10,000. They're public figures and people in the church know them. But how are you interacting with them the same way you do with other people in the church? When you see the pastor's wife or the pastor's kid, are you asking them questions you would not ask of somebody else hmm. who you knew equally as well, or in most cases, don't know very well? Yeah, that's funny. I mean, uh, just this past week, uh, I was talking to different pastor's kids in preparation to uh, for, for our interview together, and I, uh, one of them, I, I asked one of them about their experience in the church, and one of the things she said was, you know, we we never got care from people because everyone expected that my parents would do that for me so mm -hmm. so when they were reaching out to me it was more with accountability not care right and uh, i mean was that your experience i mean were there were there any ways that leaders or people reached out to you when you were struggling that now when you look back were, were deeply meaningful to you um for as a for my parents what i saw was was their relationship with the church staff. Uh, we were at a church that they were blessed to have other pastors with them, so it wasn't a situation where they were flying solo. So it started small, and by the time by the time I moved away, uh, it was a pretty large church. By the time my dad retired, uh, what, three years ago now, two years ago, um, it was a really big church, you know, several thousand people. And so the staff was, was sort of there. They were kind of all on the same page, you know, in terms of being able to, to care for one another. For me personally, there was just, yeah, there was a handful of people sort of spaced out, especially junior high and high school. As a kid, I don't remember it being as much of a pressing thing, but junior high and high school, so those those years when things tend to get more tense and you're really trying to become independent and you want to be your own person and your own thinker, and that's when you really tend to butt against the expectations of, of uh, the pastor's family. I had a, a couple of key small group leaders or close friends as peers, and they played different roles who I could be comfortable around, who I could be myself around, and a couple of whom just sort of cut through the last name 
uh, red tape and just said, I don't care what the last name is. What I see in you is this. Here's how I think you need to do things to grow. Here's what I think is great about the gifts that God has given you. And sort of just, and it was a very freeing thing, I guess, to have somebody speak to me as a 17-year-old and say, your last name does not define you. What God has instilled in you defines you. Here's how you need to change and grow to make the most of it. And that's something that I think pastor's kids would thrive in if they just had one or two people who could cut through the pressures and say, I don't care about any of that. What I care about is you as a friend and your soul and your life and your joy and happiness. And, uh, and so for congregants, one thing to look for is, are you in a position to be that person? Most of you won't be. Most people are going to be in a position to, to care from a distance. So that's prayer, that's encouragement. Pastors are really short on encouragement. They hear everything that, that people don't like and very little about what people do like. And that does have a trickle-down effect to the family. Um, but if you are in a position, you are a youth leader, you, you were somebody's counselor at camp, and you, you have that door to a relationship with a pastor's kid, be the person who, who just bankrupts the last name of pressure and says, I care about you, Johnny. I care about you, Susan. I care about you, person. And I want to help you be what God made you to be, not what the expectations tell you you have to be. Would you say, Barnabas, that there are unique, more unique challenges to being uh, the, the kid of a high-profile pastor? Um, it, it seems like the, the field becomes so much broader, you know, on one hand. And, but then on the other hand, they're living their life in their local church and in their community, and that's pretty much their world. So would, would you have experienced um, even greater challenges because of the profile of your father? And what would you want to say to somebody in a similar situation right now? Yeah, I, I think it's, I would say the situations are similar in their nature, just not their scope. So if you're a pastor's kid in a church of 150 people, you feel the same things I felt growing up. We have incredibly similar circumstances and could probably swap stories for three days. Um, the difference is that is that my dad became a functional pastor for hundreds of thousands of people because of the internet and because of publishing books and because of the passion conferences. And so that means when I left for college, I didn't get to leave behind the pressures of being a pastor's kid and figure out who I was. So that's a difference. I took it with me because, mm -hmm. I mean, granted, I, I did make the, uh, the decision to go to Wheaton College where he also went, which is an evangelical college. Mm -hmm. If I had gone to, I don't know, Notre Dame or University of uh, you know, Nebraska or something, I, I suspect it would have been a little different. Um, but so, I mean, I remember my first week of school, my, my first day of college, I should say, I, I show up to move into the dorm. My mom's driving the van with all my stuff stuffed in the back. And two guys are waiting who just lived in the area and had heard that John Piper's son was coming to Wheaton. And they waited for like three or four hours for me to show up. They didn't, I didn't know them uh, at the time. And that was my first, one of my first impressions at Wheaton College was people are waiting to meet John Piper's son. Wow. And it didn't make me feel terribly special. It was more weird than anything. No pressure there. Yeah. So that, that kind of thing continued. I mean, I remember an instance in one of my New Testament classes where uh, 
they were starting to delve into passages about uh, men's and women's roles in the church and home. Well, my dad wrote a book with Wayne Grudem called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which staunchly uh, presented and defended the complementarian case. This professor was uh, egalitarian, and he told he pulled me aside after class, and he said, hey, we're going to be going into this uh, on Wednesday. If you don't want to come to class, I understand, because uh, I know your dad has been one of the primary voices on the other side. So he was very considerate of mm -hmm. it. But there was also that sense of, oh, people are people know these things. They notice these things. So in that sense, it was more just like a continuation of the same pressures. So it is unique to, to have a dad who's really high profile. I guess what I would say to, to people, the relatively small number of people who are in the same spot, is you need to figure out who you are. And at some point, if you don't, you will end up resenting your parents because your your last name doesn't ever go away. You can't really hide from it. And so you need to get to the place where you you are comfortable with God gave me these gifts which work well in these fields and I'm going to invest myself in them. So for me, some of that overlaps with my dad because I write and I do some speaking and things like that. But I'm also in marketing and social media and stuff that he's not really... That's not really his thing. I mean, he's on social media, but it's not, it's not sort of his industry. And you have, to, you have to get to the place where you go, I can be different than my parents. And that actually carves out a space where you can love them for who they are without resenting the impact they've had on you. Because they didn't choose to have that impact on you either, in a sense. They're not trying to have the, your last name follow you. Um, and you have to have an enormous amount of grace for people who will say dumb stuff to you. <laughs> you know, weekly on Twitter, somebody will tell me that something I tweeted would disagrees with my dad or what would my dad think of that or make some reference to John Piper that just doesn't matter to me. Mm. That, that it's just, it's irrelevant to, to my life at the time. And I'm sure it grieves your father as well. Yeah, thankfully, I mean, I learned how to deal with critics from him, and he was a really good example because he he didn't back, he didn't lash back, and he let a lot roll off his back, and that's uh, that's a really good example. Don't don't engage the haters, basically. Don't feed the trolls. Don't uh, you you just have to learn. And so, on one hand, it's thick skin, and on the other hand, it's grace because sometimes it happens face to face. You know, I. I work in a ministry context, so I, should, I go to conferences and people come up and just say, you know, I just love your dad and things like that, which, I, good, I'm mm -hmm. glad. And that's, and that's kind of the way I have to learn to respond is, you know, I'm really glad that what my dad has done has had an impact on you. And if I think of it, I will tell him that I met somebody who appreciates it. But it's, it's just sort of, and then, and then you just move on. But there's no sort of, why can't I escape this? Why can't I get away? What is wrong with these people? That that can't be any part of it. I'm going to uh, pick up on a theme that you mentioned earlier, Barnabas. In fact, I'll make this my, my last question. But I, I'm thinking that there are likely guys that are listening to the podcast that are either pastoring or, or they feel called to do so, but the kids are young. And the experience of parenting, the experience of the church, does not yet have the complications that the later years can bring you know so so what are some of the things that they can do right now to better prepare themselves and their family and their church for 
the uncertainty of you know the the teenage years. That is a. Uh... That's one of the the groups of people who I really hoped that when I wrote the book or anything else I've said about pastors' kids, I could connect with most because they haven't run out of time. You know, they still have a chance to to hopefully set some some things in motion that'll be really good for their families and good for their churches. I think um, I think the environment you set in your home starts really early, and that's probably I mean that's a marital thing as much as it is a parenting thing in terms of a place of being a place where questions can be asked because teenagers will challenge everything. They will challenge the standards you've set for them. They will challenge their curfew. They will challenge, some of them will challenge the theological viewpoints. And even if they're not intending to challenge, as their intellect grow, they will have questions. So before then, are you creating a place where it's safe for your kids to ask questions or are you simply shutting them down and sort of going, this truth is dictated to you. You may not ask that question. To me, questions and answers are the best ways to teach, and it spurs better thinking, and it spurs better engagement. And as time goes on, it will be more persuasive than simply telling them you should believe X and leaving it at that. So I think that environment is a big one. I think in a broader sense, just modeling grace and forgiveness and your own need for it. So when your children are three and four and five years old and you blow your stack and lose your temper, do you go to them and say, I was wrong. I did the wrong thing. I let my anger get the best of me. Would you please forgive me? And show them that not only do you generally believe in sin, but you know that you need forgiveness for your sin and that, and that forgiveness is a freeing thing hmm. because they will trust you more if they know that you you need forgiveness from them. You need forgiveness from God. They need forgiveness from you and from God, and you create a context for that. I think that's a really big one. And then I think the other thing is have fun with them. They're occasionally, too often, I think, pastors lose touch with their kids, and they, they lose fun. I've seen some awesome examples, and I think more and more pastors are more and more aware of this, and and I'm really happy for that. But Make time for them so that you're, you're going to ball games or going to the things that they enjoy and including them in the things that you enjoy. One of the things that I, that I, this is just a super practical piece of advice, have a hobby you can include your kids in. Reading doesn't count because it's not really a group activity. <laughs> mm-hmm. So if you love um, to watch baseball, take your kids to baseball games. Down the road, they may not, uh, they may not love baseball very much, but they will cherish the memories of you doing something with them that you loved. So it's a two-way street. You invest in the things they love. You go to their dance recitals and, and things like that. But you, in, you invite them into the things that you love. And it creates a relational context that that is a love language for kids. Yeah. Play. Play is a long, love language for kids. Fun is. Jokes are. Silliness is. So, so make that part of it, too. That's a big deal. That's, that's very helpful, Barnabas, and, and very insightful. And, uh, you know, I, I want to thank you for for your thoughtful replies and, and, and even more so just the work that you've put into and the thought you've put into how to serve pastors, kids. So, which includes being on the podcast today. So thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much. I, I'm, I, 
always passionate about trying to help people in ministries, families. That's a, it's a tough spot, and I empathize and have enormous respect for people trying to serve the church. That's a, it's a wonderful calling, and it's a really hard thing, and it can be. So I hope it was an encouragement to people. Folks, this has been the Am I Called podcast. Uh, for, t- for tons of free stuff on leadership and calling and preaching, as well as other podcasts. We've got podcasts with Randy Alcorn and Mike Horton, Paul Tripp, Tim Challies, a host of other folks as well. If any of that interests you, go to amicalled.com. I'm your host, Dave Harvey. Thanks for joining us and have a great day.